Hey folks, just a quick note before we start the episode proper. I will be attending GraphQL Summit next week out in San Francisco. So if anyone else will be there uh, November 7th and the 8th, I would love to catch up. I'd love to chat with you about GraphQL, Bike Shed, Ruby, Rails, JavaScript, uh, the impending heat death of the universe, really anything that speaks to you, I would love to chat about. So do track me down and find me if you are going to be there. All right, catch you later. Uh, uncompressed AIFF? Yep. Tom wants all of the audio. <laughs> Okay, uh, that is now saying that. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> Thank I have you. no idea what I'm doing here. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by George Brocklehurst, director from our New York office. George, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thanks, Chris. So uh, how are things? What have you been up to? Things are going pretty well. I've been writing a surprising amount of JavaScript recently. <laughs> Living on a, a different in a different world than you typically do. There was a conversation that I saw in Slack recently around the concept of JavaScript and writing heavy client-side apps. And I've had a number of conversations with you over the years about this topic, and I feel like you you bring an interesting perspective. So I was hoping that we could dig into that just a little bit and chat about particularly your thoughts around progressive enhancement, whether or not it's still a thing, whether or not it's still relevant as more and more applications are being written in JavaScript and heavy client-side and, and all of that. But yeah, with that as an intro, what are your thoughts? My thoughts haven't changed that much over the years, despite the new tooling that's come out, but I feel like they've become increasingly controversial as a result. <laughs> so I'm not against writing JavaScript or using JavaScript, but especially in a lot of the contexts we work in, which is with early stage companies who are trying to prove out ideas or established companies who are trying to prove out new ideas, reducing complexity and getting to market fast is really important. And so progressive enhancement especially in terms of, say, rendering pages on the server side and then adding JavaScript in the areas where it makes sense and where it adds features, that really makes sense. You get the benefit there of deciding when and where you increase the complexity of your app rather than just jumping in with something that's very complex all across the board from the start. Yep, that makes sense. And I think there's sometimes an emotional aspect to this conversation, I think, because there are people that get more invested in JavaScript tooling? Or are there a lot of people, frankly, that are coming into programming with JavaScript being their first experience? And then they might hear that, oh, no, no, you shouldn't be doing that, or something that may come across as judgmental. And I think that that can be a very dangerous way to talk about it, but I really like the way you framed it there of there is additional complexity just inherently to building a distributed system to having you're always going to have the server-side aspect of the API and building that out, but then also the client-side and that that has a cost. And over time, that may actually be beneficial for some applications, but for a lot of the companies that we work with and for a lot of companies that are just trying to build something and get it to market, that is a cost that they maybe don't need to pay. Yeah, server-side rendering technologies, things like just vanilla Rails, been around for a really long time now. They're really stable. We can put things together with them really fast. And you just think about the increase of complexity of, say, rather than rendering an index page with a list of objects, instead building an API which can serve that list of objects and then building that index page in a front-end framework, there's more code, there's more of the communication that you own at that point as well. You, you can't push quite so many things onto the browser. The browser's JavaScript runtime is getting better all the time, so there's more and more stuff that is handled for you. But still, there's a lot of things around user communication, like 
did loading the data succeed or fail? Mm -hmm. Or is it still in progress? Should I, am I waiting? You take on all those responsibilities from the browser. So there's more to think about and more to do. There's another aspect that I've seen in terms of the like increased complexity where moving applications to the client side means that you often end up in a situation where you have essentially a distributed cache. And so now your front end application is actually, as you transition between different pages, it's maintaining some state in the background, it's caching data. And there's a beauty of server-side applications where each time you do something, you're going all the way back to the server to the canonical source of truth, to ideally the uh, truly atomically consistent view of the world. And you get to ask again and you get to say, you know, are we logged in or are we logged out? Did they pay or did they not? And there are interesting cache invalidation issues, which, as we know, that's that's one of the hard problems, one of those two or three, depending on how you count. So I definitely agree with the premise of, like, there is additional complexity there. And again, it, the, the world of JavaScript has moved an unbelievable amount in the past few years. I'm blown away by the progress that the language fundamentally, as well as the frameworks and tooling around it have moved. But still, it's a lot to take on for the first thing. And if you really just want to get something out there and learn, frankly... That's, I think, the key. And that's one of the things that we push so strongly at ThoughtBot is early user testing and early getting that first feedback as quickly as possible and not necessarily investing that much in the code because code, I don't know, code can be a liability. Absolutely. You touched on an interesting point, though, with the, the distributed cache. Like state can also be a liability, having code mm -hmm. which can exist in multiple states and you have to get things in the right state to test them. Whereas a traditional HTTP server-rendered application it feels much more like functional programming in a way mm -hmm. in that everything that comes in is in the request and everything that goes out is in the response and there isn't really that much state you, you might be using a session store but even that is based on a cookie that comes in in the request yep. a cookie that goes out in the response so things are much more atomic which makes it easier to think about easier to test whereas a, a javascript application you end up with a lot of client-side state and the client-side state is something that you're going to have to reproduce in order to test effectively. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounded like at the beginning of this, so we, we started with a focus on some of the cautionary aspects of where we think these technologies may not be ideal to reach for initially when we're first building something out. But on the flip side, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I want to ask it as a question. Do you feel there is a time where they actually stand out, where they are the right tools for the job? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the thing I'm working on at the moment is a, is a case in point. I'm working on some fairly interactive features for a Shopify store. And so we're using Vue.js for that. Partly it's the constraints of working with Shopify. We don't have control over the back end, so we can't do complex server rendered things with lots of custom interactions. But the constraints make it the right trade-off in this situation. We get the benefit of all of the features of Shopify out of the box, so we don't have to rebuild all that functionality. So we get to market fast, which is the thing we're looking for here. And then we're using Vue to provide that interactivity in the front end because that's the area where we have full control. So mm -hmm. that's one example where there are just constraints of the tools we're using. But there are definitely other examples where the interface is key and having that rich interactive interface with lots of lots of elements on the page that are all tied together and all change with each other in sync is just the core of the application. It's just mm -hmm. what you need to do. Like say you were building Slack, you need to know that you have messages in another channel that you don't have open right now, but when you open it, you want the messages to render immediately. It wouldn't be impossible to build Slack with server rendering only or server rendering first, but I don't know if it would really be It would faster. be a very different experience, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, although, interestingly, Slack as a desktop app is an Electron app, 
which then takes this question to a whole nother level. There's, again, a speed to market, actually, that happens there because they built the web app, but then they wrapped it up in an Electron shell. And there's a there's performance and a memory and some other... Electron's kind of a whole topic, I think, in and of itself, which I've yet to even dig that much into. But it's it's interesting. How, like, I think we have Skype up in front of us right now, and I think Skype might be an Electron app now based on some of the things that happened. Tom tried to close a window and everything closed, and he was very confused by that. He's like, don't you know what windows are, Skype? And I think it's because it's an Electron app now. I'm not sure on that. I will need to check it and decide if I was being honest in that moment. But write once, run anywhere has been a, a holy grail for a long time. Mm-hmm. I remember that being the, the big promise of Java 15 years ago or whenever it, whenever it was yeah. that I was first. Although I don't think that one Java. worked out so much. <laughs> Java applets and all those sort of things have gone to the wayside. Although I, when React Native first came onto the scene, I was really intrigued by the the way they framed it. I think they did a really good job from a marketing and a a promotion standpoint of saying explicitly, this is not write once, run everywhere. That's not what we're going for. What we're going for is learn once, write everywhere, which was a flipping the whole thing on its head. The idea is let's use the same paradigms, the same interfaces, ideally a lot of the same code, but not all of the same code. Let's be platform specific where that makes sense. So on an iOS app, we're going to have a table view that looks a certain way. And on a Android app, we're going to have one that looks a different way. And then when we're on the web, we can go a third way. But ideally, they could share, say, common state manipulation code in the background. And I think that feels like a nice optimization of that rather than the true, it's a Java thing and it just runs anywhere, but it looks weird on every platform and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And interestingly, when you move from the web to the desktop, you're making the the opposite trade-off almost where by using a a JavaScript framework in that context, you're losing power of of having the first-party native languages and frameworks and that very direct integration with the hardware, but you're gaining speed maybe by sharing code between things. And then on the web, it seems like it's the opposite way around where using something like React, you're often gaining power, but at the expense of speed. And Mm -hmm. you could do something faster without that framework. Yeah, it is an interesting asymmetry between those two or symmetry or, yeah. Not sure which mathematical concept applies here, but that is an interesting way to view that trade-off. I am surprised that React Native for the desktop hasn't become more of a thing. Like I've seen some folks have have tried it, but it's clear that Facebook doesn't really care. That's not important to them, so they've not invested the money in it. But it, for the same reasons that React Native for mobile makes sense, React Native for the desktop feels like it could be a very nice thing to have. And there definitely are projects that do it, but I've just not seen it get anywhere near the adoption. Like Electron just seems to run the show. I wonder what the benefits of building a React Native app for the desktop would be over just building a React app that ran in a browser. Because the the code distribution story is certainly simpler going through a browser if you can just send people to a URL and then there is your application. Yes, which that is the thing that I love about the web, I will say that. But I think the story would be like having native UI widgets and being able to interact in that way. In the same way that React Native on iOS, you have a a true iOS table view that has the recycling of cells and things like that and has animations and gestures and platform-relevant UI embellishments or, or design. It's that same idea but applied to a desktop app. But again, there there doesn't seem to be as much demand for it. The idea of apps that just fit in with the desktop experience, there doesn't seem to be as much concern for that. Whereas mobile apps tend to tend to want a little more polish in the design, as far as I can tell. And so that's, I think, why React Native has seemed to win out over Cordova and the other true just JavaScript in a window mobile app technologies. It's interesting. I think my use of desktop apps has shrunk because more and more things I do have either moved into a web browser or have moved to the command line. Yep. And so I'm either using 
my terminal emulator, which is one specific desktop application, and then everything's kind of through an interface within that, or I'm using my web browser and everything's through an interface within. It's true. I'm in the same boat. I often look at folks who are working on Linux machines, which are surprisingly rare in the industry that we work in. Pretty much everyone I see is on Mac laptop, but then I'll see someone on Linux and I'm like, oh, wow, wow, that's a, that's a whole different thing. And then I stop and think for a minute. I'm like, wait a minute, I just use a terminal and the browser and I know both of those run on Linux. So I wonder what it, I, I have purposefully not allowed myself to go on that adventure because I, I tend to spend some time on uh, Vim and command line things and all of that. But I think I could make the switch if it, if it came to it. Yeah, I, I think about it every few years, and I've, I've stuck with the Mac so far, but I, I do think about it every now and then. And I've made a few deliberate choices where I moved from a Mac-only application to something that was a bit more a bit more portable. Trying to keep that flexibility should you ever decide to jump ship. Yeah, yeah. You want to be free. As long as I've got Bash and a web browser at this point, I'm happy. Yep. It's a simple life. Well, I would love to uh, actually transition the conversation over now to a pretty fundamentally different topic, but there's something that you've been exploring recently, you've been leading the charge within ThoughtBot that is actually a bit of a departure for us as well, and that is the world of machine learning. I have a whole bunch of questions about that, but to start, what is machine learning, George? Are the machines going to learn everything? Are they only learning certain things? What, what is this entire world? That's a really good question. So let's see if I can answer it coherently. So machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence. So it's one way of approaching the problem of artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence being, can we get machines to, if not think, at least appear as if they are thinking for themselves. What machine learning does specifically is it applies statistics to things to find patterns in information. So when you're doing traditional types of programming, you take some input data, you write down some rules, and what you get is output data. In machine learning contexts, you take some input data and a few assumptions, and what you get out is the rules which allow you to derive the output data. And when you say the rules there, the rules don't come out as code. They come out as some intermediate structure that is understood by another part of the, the application, but not code, correct? Correct, yes. It's it's normally it's normally actually a set of, of numbers, which your input data gets transformed into some numbers multiplied by a whole bunch of, of numbers I mean, at the low level, all code is just a bunch of numbers, right? Sure. Zeros and ones, but in a meaningful way, this is not that. Yeah. The important distinction is that there are types of machine learning models where you can look at the output and go, oh, I see what this is saying is that that piece of input data is twice as important as this piece of input data for producing the answer we want. But there are other types of machine learning where you look at the the output and it is it is meaningless. It's completely mm-hmm. opaque, but it seems to come up with the right answer most of the time because it's a complex mathematical model that has shaped itself to the pattern that exists in the data, but not in a way where you can backtrack and say, oh, this is what the pattern is. That makes sense. There was a, an anecdote or a, an example that you provided at the, we have our summer summit every year and everyone came to the Boston office and George was kind enough to give a presentation about machine learning and introduction. And there was a particular example that you gave around, I'm actually forgetting it now. I remember the latter part. I forget what the boring bit was, but then you said like, this is a good problem for machine learning. But could you rephrase that here just to to give that bit of context? There are things that you memorize, right? Like there are types of learning you do as a human that are very much rote learning where 
you read a thing in a book, you remember the thing that's in the book. So I think the example I used there was certain kinds of, of math. Like I remember that the sine of an angle is the opposite over the hypotenuse. And I remember that because I was taught mnemonics at school and I remember the mnemonics and so I can remember that rule. But it's very much an explicit, I was told the rule, I had to remember the rule. And then there are other things that we learn as humans that we don't necessarily know what we know. Mm-hmm. Adjective ordering in English is a really good example. Like you could say the small red ball, and that sounds right to a native English speaker, but you would never say the red small ball. That doesn't sound right to a native English speaker. But linguists have kind of backtracked from the way people talk and written down what the rules are, but we don't explicitly learn those rules in school. You don't sit down when you're a child and and have to learn, okay, small comes before red because size comes before color. Mm. You just pick it up through observation and through through the patterns. So traditional programming is more like the first kind of thing where there are explicit rules that you write down. Machine learning is more like the second kind of thing where you just have lots and lots of examples and you derive some pattern from those. The example bit that you're talking about there is basically all machine learning using that where you have a training data set that you say, here's a bunch of example inputs and what the correct output would be for those. So like in that case, is it, yes, this is a correct ordering of the sentence or no, it is not. And then a bunch of sample sentences. Is that core to machine learning or is that just one technique? So that's one of the main families of machine learning called supervised learning. And it's called supervised because you give it both the question and the answer. Like you give it a bunch of examples of both the input and the output. And that's useful for things like classification. So is this picture a face or not a face? You train that by hand, labeling lots and lots of example images of these ones are faces, these ones are not faces. The other main family is unsupervised learning, which is more about finding patterns in data. And in that case, you don't need to provide answers per se, you just provide some assumptions. So an example there is extracting the main colors that exist in an image. You can use a a clustering algorithm and say, here's an image, there are six primary colors in here, find them. And the algorithm will just find the six most strongly represented colors based on whatever assumptions are built into that particular clustering algorithm. It's interesting. That one almost feels like, in my mind, I can imagine a an algorithmic approach to that as opposed to a machine learning. So that's an interesting one that, like, I'm guessing the machine learning produces a better output or is a little bit more flexible in the way that it works. Whereas the first one, it just totally makes sense that that would, if we don't have the rule, then heuristic generation of that makes sense. I think even the machine learning approach is very algorithmic in those unsupervised cases, Mm. but it it fits the machine learning pattern because it's iteratively finding answers and iteratively getting better. So it it learns as it goes. So it starts with, say say we took a, a photograph and said, find the three primary colors in here. The way a typical clustering algorithm would work would be to pick three random colors that were present in the image and say, okay, which color, like of all the colors here, which ones are closest to each of these points? That's our three groups. Now let's move the center point of each of those groups to the true center of the group. So rather than the random point we chose, where's the true center? Now we have three new colors, which colors are closest to each of these three center points. And it it learns iteratively as it runs through that. So on one level, it's a couple of nested for loops, but on another level, it's an example of machine learning because it's applying statistics to a thing to discover what the answers are. Right, I think this may be uh... An example of my understanding of machine learning being more from television and pop culture than from actual programming, where I'm imagining a thing that is basically simulating a human brain and doing that, which I think it sounds like that's one of the cases and one of the ways that machine learning can happen. But there's also its iterative sequential learning and statistics based programming 
as opposed to the true brain representation. The brain representation stuff, like there, there are artificial neural networks, which are a very popular technique and a very useful technique in machine learning. And essentially the, the recent boom in machine learning has come from computers getting fast enough to build larger and more complex artificial neural networks. So a lot of the speech recognition technology that's got a lot better in the last few years, a lot of the, the image recognition technology, things like game playing, so AlphaGo and AlphaZero and all those programs that have been making the news, that's all coming out of larger, more complex, deeper artificial neural networks. It's definitely a very popular technique and a very common one now for certain kinds of problems, but it's also... I guess this actually ties back to the JavaScript discussion we were having earlier, in that this is the trend, is to use deep neural networks for things, but there are also things that you can solve more simply with a less complex machine learning setup, a less complex model. And the less complex models tend to be the ones that are easier to understand, the ones where you can look at the output and go, oh, that piece of input data is twice as important as that, I get it. But when you get into complex problems like, is this a face or not a face, or is this definitely Chris's face, so we should unlock his phone now, then you need the power of the deep neural networks. But you don't necessarily need that for a more simple classification problem. I love the callback. I did not intend for it to be all integrated, but there you are. You're, uh, you're keeping us honest. So some of the things that you've talked about here, I think, are a little bit adjacent to web development. So some like image processing and things like that are likely tasks that web developers are not doing as much. But I Particularly Joe, our CTO, has been talking a lot about uh, the interaction between data science and machine learning and how that's more and more prevalent and that his expectation is that that's going to be table stakes pretty soon. The idea of we just have people producing so much data. We have the Facebooks of the world that have the entire social network as a graph that they are modeling and then doing machine learning on that to try and understand connections that may have not been explicitly stated, but are present in the graph and knowable if you use some heuristic analysis. But are there other examples that you think fit within that, the data that we have on the web and the way that we interact with data these days? Recommendations is a, is a really big one that comes up in a lot of different web contexts. So something that we deployed recently was we now have recommended posts on the ThoughtBot blog, and that is done using a machine learning model. So the company's been around for 15 years, so... Yeah, I think it goes back that far. And the early posts are kind of weird. I like them. They've got more, um, what's the word, quirkiness. We've gotten a little more polished in our old age. But yeah, I think the blog goes all the way back. And so there's a lot that we have said on there. Many, many posts. So figuring out related posts by hand would have been a pretty huge undertaking. And maybe it's a thing we could have started doing for new posts only and maybe slowly backfilled over time. But instead, we thought we'd try a machine learning model on it. And so we're using a model called a, a topic model, which looks for words that typically occur together. And then it's one of these unsupervised models. So you go in with the assumption of a certain number of topics and it figures out, okay, well, topic one might be words like Ruby and Rails and topic two might be words like test and testing and test driven and and those kind of things. Topic three might be Git, GitHub, those kind of words. And then from those clusters of words that are discovered, you can classify any article as how much affinity it has for any given topic. So, you know, a post might be 80% topic one because it's mostly about Ruby and then 15% topic two because there's a little bit of testing and then 1% topic three because it mentions Git once and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and once you have that distribution of topics for each post, you can compare the distributions to compare posts. It's a useful way of finding similarities because 
the topics provide this level of indirection. So if two posts are talking about Ruby and Rails, but they're not using all of the same vocabulary, the fact that the vocabulary they are using commonly appears together in other posts kind of ties them to the same topic, which means you might get a post about Active Record and a post about Action Controller, and they end up being quite similar because those words are often used together in other contexts. So it's a, a way of curating our content automatically rather than having to do it by hand. Of course, it's not perfect, especially for topics we haven't talked about on the blog very much. You mm-hmm. get some some pretty wild recommendations sometimes. I assume with that, you can do thresholding and, and things to filter it out. Or I was actually very interesting when you did the presentation at Summer Summit, you solved FizzBuzz using machine learning. So you built a machine learning algorithm that took in some sample data and then built its model and then ran it over a bunch of numbers. And it was 94% correct which I, I don't know if everyone else enjoyed that as much as I did, but that was a hilarious representation of like this thing that we can trivially solve with an algorithm that we then applied machine learning and we got that 94% correct number. But that's actually still interesting because there are plenty of problems for which it is either effort-wise infeasible or otherwise, like we don't know how to define the rule. We certainly know the rule for FizzBuzz, but we don't know it for much more subtle things. And like this sort of topic recommendation is a perfect example so yeah, I, I just really enjoyed that. I wanted to share that with the folks, the 94% correct FizzBuzz. I, I can imagine people thinking, but how did you solve FizzBuzz with machine learning? So just as a quick sketch of that, we started by representing the input number. So you know, FizzBuzz, you say one, two, Fizz, four, Buzz. We represent the one as, as the binary, as a 32-bit binary number, and the two as a 32-bit binary number and so on. And then we fed that input into a, a very small neural network. I think it had... 32 inputs, one for each bit, and then it had one hidden layer with, I think, 32 nodes, and then two outputs, which were just yes or no to fizz, yes or no to buzz. And from that, it trained quite quickly. It trained in a few minutes with, I think, about 10,000 examples, maybe 100,000 examples. And then, yeah, we got to 94% accuracy, which I think if that also that 94% accuracy was playing fizzbuzz from one to a thousand. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure if we played fizzbuzz from one to a thousand right now, we wouldn't get 94% accuracy. I think oh, yeah, if I were to mistakes. do it off the top of my head right now, A, it would make for amazing radio. <laughs> B, I would not do 94% well. Okay, I'll stop. There, were, <laughs> there was uh, an interesting aspect of it, though, that there's clearly, there, there's obviously a lot of science to machine learning, but there was also clearly some art to it. In that, like what you said about you represented the inputs as the binary representation of the number rather than the decimal representation. And I remember when you were saying, you were like, this, I just know that it works better for this. And I think behind the scenes, you would probably done it the first way. And then you're like, huh, that's interesting. And then tried it again the separate way because there's a certain shared knowledge base that folks working in machine learning have. But that was an interesting part that I was a little bit surprised to see, but then certainly makes sense in retrospect. It's an interesting way of approaching things, but it does make sense given the context where if you if you think of it as we're approaching a problem where we don't know what the rules are, but we're assuming that some rules exist and we're assuming that there is a statistical model that can represent those rules, you might have to try a few statistical models out before you land on the one that actually represents the rules correctly. Yep. Like I said, it makes sense, but it was one of those that like caught me off guard in the first pass. It was like, oh, I assume we just let it go until it got the right answer, but that's definitively not how this whole game plays out. No, it's it's a risky thing, though, especially with a neural network-based system. You don't understand what the output is. You have to make right. sure you're testing it thoroughly because otherwise you can build the wrong thing. And yep. like building the wrong thing to play FizzBuzz doesn't really matter, but there have definitely been some pretty major horror stories about, say, facial recognition that that only works mm-hmm. for some groups of people 
or voice recognition that doesn't recognize certain accents, that kind of thing. Yeah, or military applications, things like that, where the decisions that are made by these systems can, in fact, affect human lives. Yeah, like if we get FizzBuzz wrong or we recommend the wrong song to you on Spotify, like, yeah, we'll be fine. But it gets into an interesting ethical area with programming that I think, again, as web developers, we tend to not be that close to. So can you talk a little bit about the technologies that are at play? It's less in the Ruby space. There's more in Python and other things like that. But I'm just interested in what are the what are the tools you're using to build these sort of machine learning systems? Everything I've done so far has been built using Python. I know Joe's been doing some experiments in Scala as well. So there are other languages with good machine learning ecosystems, but the Python one is the one I know the best because I already knew Python. So it seemed like a, a logical place to start. A lot of it is built on the the NumPy and SciPy ecosystem. So, uh, NumPy is a really good linear algebra library. It just it's very good at representing vectors and matrices and tensors and doing operations on those, which turns out to be what a lot of machine learning things are based on. And then there are some kind of really good data manipulation and experimentation tools around in Python. So I tend to start with a lot of things in in Jupyter Notebook which is a browser-based interactive programming environment. It's kind of like a REPL, but you can rerun individual pieces of the code. So it's, it's based on a series of cells, and cells can be written in multiple programming languages, but typically I'm just using some Python cells and some Markdown cells to document what I'm doing. And then you can run the cells, you can run the whole file, but you can also run and rerun individual cells. So it's, it's great for experimenting with things, playing around, just finding out about data. Right. And that makes sense with the more iterative and experimental nature of machine learning as opposed to traditional coding where you're just getting in there and typing things out. Yeah. Alongside that, a great library called Pandas, which is really good at manipulating tabular data. And that works really nicely with Jupyter Notebook for displaying tabular data also. So that can be a good place to start with data experiments. And so for the the stuff I did on the blog, I started with a Jupyter Notebook, pulled in all of our blog posts, and then played around with the data in there. And then once I had something I was happy with, I pulled out that code into some Python files and refactored it into objects and, and made it made it nice. More conducive for long-term maintenance rather than being conducive for short-term experimentation. And then particular libraries, SciPy provides scikit-learn, which is a really huge selection of machine learning tools. There are lots and lots of different models, but also lots of just convenient utilities around that. And then closely related to all of this stuff, there are a lot of natural language processing tools in Python too. So for the blog posts, I used uh, actually a weird combination of them. I used NLTK, which is the natural language toolkit. I used Spacey, which provides a lot of the same things as natural language toolkit, but just some of the interfaces easier in Spacey rather than NLTK. And Gensim as well, which provided the actual topic model itself. So those were the, the tools I was using. Sounds like a nice cross-section. It was interesting to hear you describe the, there was the like exploratory phase of the project and then the transition over to the implementation of the building a robust system around that. Most of what I've heard of machine learning in industry tends to follow that model where there's say the data science team who's working in that more exploratory manner. They have a different ETL type data pipeline that they're managing that lets them poke at the data and build up a model. But then that model will get handed over to an implementation team to actually build into the software in some more concrete way. And you played both roles in that. But as far as I've seen it, in most cases, those tend to be two different groups. Does that map to your your understanding of the majority of the working machine learning world at this point? Yeah, I think I think that's a very common case that you'll have people 
working with the data and people working with the production software, and they're a little bit separate from each other. Actually, it was it was useful in this case to go back and do a third step, which was to then take the original notebooks and make them import and use the cleaned up code so that it was possible to still go back and rerun the same experiments, but without all of the code being there in the in the notebook. Because some of the things I was doing with the notebook were things like visualization of what are the topics and experimenting with different numbers of topics and seeing which number produced the best results. And so it'll be useful to rerun some of those experiments as the blog changes over time and as as we get more content and different kinds of content. You know, it may be that now we are well represented by 40 topics, but in a couple of years we'll be better represented by 50. So it's going to be helpful to be able to go back to those notebooks and rerun them and use those to retune the models over time. Right. And I'm guessing you've committed those to the repo and they just live as an artifact alongside the actual production code. Yep, exactly. So each time we make a new blog post, then is it running through this whole system to regenerate the entire set of recommendations? And thus, like, say there's 10 topics total. Would those 10 topics potentially change over time as we add more blog posts? Yeah, that's that's the way it's set up right now. It is possible to persist the model and update it with new information as it comes in. But actually, another tie back to our, our JavaScript conversation, the current approach is stateless. So mm-hmm. it just receives a post request from Maitre D, which is our blog software, sends a post request to Sommelier, which is the recommendation software. And Sommelier says, ah, okay, there are new posts, loads the entire database of posts, builds the topic model, and then posts the result of its recommendations back to Maitre to be stored back in the database. So it takes maybe five minutes whenever we publish a new post for all of those pieces to run, but it doesn't really matter. The posts just yep. don't have recommendations for a few minutes and, and then they do. Yep. It's interesting actually to do one last tie back to our conversation around JavaScript and complexity and systems growing or starting more complex. Our blog started, I think, as It was Tumblr way back when, I know that. It might have been Posterous or something even before that, but it was a very simple, just, I don't know, WYSIWYG content editor, and then we put some stuff on the web. And over time, now that I think about the shape that it's in, we have Maitre D, which you talked about. That's uh, the actual thing, the Rails app that serves it. We have a content delivery network in front of that. We now have a machine learning separate microservice along the side. Our blog has grown quite complex, but I think the key there and the message that we have around the whole world of microservices in this case is don't start that way like there are particular pains and reasons that we have made these moves and like in this case we had a different technology it would have been nice if that all could have lived in maitre d but again ruby is not a language that has as much of the the libraries and frameworks and so you ended up building this other service but we certainly would not have started with this for our own homegrown blog situation absolutely and even setting this up like i I was feeling the pain as well as the benefit in doing this like there there are now two pieces of software that communicate with each other and bidirectionally even for that communication that exists so uh, that's definitely more effort than one piece of software that just communicates internally but as an aside it is awesome i was so impressed and just really happy to see when you built i was like that's so cool that like it's rare at this point for me to feel that the charm of programming that the novelty of creating something just totally new I've done a lot, I've seen a lot. And so although there's new things coming out often, this was a rare case where I just felt that like that joy of, oh, that's that's really cool. I'm so excited to see that. Uh, and additionally, you wrote a, a lovely blog post to go along. Perfect, of course, you wrote a blog post to describe the work that you did to get the generated content at the bottoms of the blog post. So we can certainly point everyone there. 
Are there any general other resources that you might recommend for folks if they're interested in dipping their toes into the water of machine learning? Just quickly, my favorite thing about that blog post announcing the recommendations is that the recommendations at the bottom of that post are horrible. Because we have no other machine learning content. (laughs) Or at least we do have other machine learning content, but we don't have enough of it that it is one of the dominant topics on our blog. And Uh, so the topic model doesn't see it as being important. So you get to the bottom of this post about how we built this very complex recommendation system, and then the recommendations don't seem terribly relevant. Were you interested in Git? How about Rails? None of those things. But then if you read a post about one of the dominant topics on our blog, so if you read a post about Rails or about Git or about testing, about them, those kind of things, you'll get really, really relevant recommendations. And even if they're not using the same language, so a more naive approach wouldn't have found them, they work really well. So like there are limitations to the model that we chose. It just is funny to me that those limitations expose themselves very clearly on that one post. Yep, it's a perfect little uh, conclusion to that whole story. But on other resources, there are a couple of other posts I've written on our blog, which are kind of introductions to the topic of machine learning and contain links to much more comprehensive resources than the blog posts themselves. So it's probably good to point people to those posts and then you can dip your toes in there. And once you get to the bottom, there'll be more links to a whole bunch of other stuff you can explore. That is an oddly perfect answer for you to give to this as such a good steward of the web and progressive enhancement and the fact that we have this wonderful interlinking document model here. So I think on that note, we will take our leave. George, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. It's been fun. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review in iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter. I'm at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.